0: We are on page 36, the bottom of page 36, the last paragraph of the page. Just for the sake of review, because this is somewhat involved, what we've been doing over the last couple of weeks. Just for the sake of a brief review, to everybody's benefit, including my own. The, what Rav Meshacham has developed over the, the last number of weeks in our learning is that the concept of God's oneness can be more fully appreciated by realizing various beliefs that are very prevalent in past or present societies and understanding them and analyzing them correctly, and coming to realize that there are certain basic flaws in those beliefs of society that run contrary to what we really mean when we say God is one. Now, the the point of this whole discussion of God being one is because Rav Moshe made a statement in, in our learning a number of weeks ago that the ultimate that we can hope for in understanding God is his oneness. I mean, God has many, many different things about him. His wisdom, his power, his compassion, and so on and so forth, and the list is endless. But but the particular aspect that we have most access to, and that the prophets refer to as being the ultimate bliss of man in the realization of God, for some reason is God's oneness which he did not explain and which hopefully we'll get into this evening. Why is it his oneness more than any other feature that we're trying to relate to? If I can just reel us back in terms of the the logical sequence, basically Lozado established a principle that it's through our knowledge of God that we gain a closeness to God and by that closeness to God and appreciation of God we fill our lives with strives, strives to emulate God and to be like God and that's what fulfills us and makes us happy. That's essentially without getting into all the argumentation, that's essentially His formula. Okay, we want to get close to God, we want to love God, we have to know who He is in order to be able to have any kind of a meaningful relationship with God. What can we know about God? His oneness. Why His oneness more than anything else is hopefully what we're going to deal with this evening. But in order to analyze what we mean by God's oneness and why the knowledge of God's oneness can make a relationship so deep and so meaningful, Rav Chaim Latzate has gone on a journey with us through a technique of learning which is certainly not considered classical in in, Jewish, in, in the Jewish way of learning and that is by learning what everybody else says first. Uh, finding, discussing all of the false philosophies that are prevalent around us and to a certain degree creep into our own lifestyles. And he dealt with five primary ones for the sake of comparison, for the sake of comparing and learning the differences and getting a deeper knowledge of what we mean by what God's oneness. Once we know that, we can know why the knowledge of God's oneness is, is such a critical aspect that bonds man to God why it's, it's such an all-encompassing kind of a thing and that's I'd like to deal with that, touch on that a little bit because that's a point that we left out essentially the five philosophies uh, are and I know some of you are going to make faces about them but I, uh, we've already shown over the weeks that we all buy into these philosophies to lesser or greater extents the first philosophy is that God has intermediaries that control different facets of the world and there's nothing wrong with going through intermediaries in order to be able to eventually get to God. You know, you have to talk to the secretary before you talk to the boss kind of an idea. And we know that this was the beginning of idol worship. That's how it started. It started with believing in God but, uh, so to speak, giving God the space of knowing that, you know, he's so special we can't bother him. And we'll go to the different forces that he created and go through those forces. And little, little, slowly but surely, what happened is that we ditched God altogether and we just worship those things. That was one. And then you had the second philosophy, which is that there's a God of good and there is nothing in this world that doesn't have its equal opposite. Which means that if there's a God of good, and we're swell because we say that God is good and is the epitome of good and everything else. There must be an equal opposite force that represents everything that's negative and evil in this world. So there's a God of good and there's a God of evil. Right? And we buy into that philosophy unknowingly. We buy into that philosophy in our difficulty of appreciating the, the stronger aspects of God and wanting to look away from those aspects. Right? that's the second one. Then we had the third philosophy which is that the world was given over to natural forces that means that I either channel those forces to my benefit or I'm a lazy bones and that nothing happens and essentially that goes with the philosophy be a hustler and you'll be successful and if you're not a hustler you won't. A second part of that is that it's all in the stars again given over to the natural forces and no matter what you do or don't do it all depends upon what was deemed for you in your destiny that one can see in your stars. Essentially, both of those philosophies say that there is no inter between God and man where things happen to the human being as a response to what he's done before, injustice to what he's done before, in preparation for something that he has to do in the future. There is no interplay between the circumstances of man and what man-God-God-God-Man and and relationship is all about. The notion that things will go well for me Uh, if I respond to my responsibilities vis-a-vis God and therefore the relationship will be blessed and my life will be blessed is utter nonsense in this concept. This concept is either you're a hustler or not or you were born under the right right star. That's the third philosophy. The fourth philosophy... Um, the fourth philosophy, the third philosophy we mentioned last week or two weeks ago, when we're successful we buy into the philosophy that we did it ourselves and we're hustlers. When we're failures we buy into the philosophy that it was all in the stars and we couldn't help ourselves. Uh, The fourth philosophy, um, which is not terribly common to us, the fourth one at least, uh, the, the idea that God set up his world with a free will system with reward and punishment, we blew it as a people, and therefore God is forced to ditch us as a people and adopted a better nation than us, which goes into all of Christianity. Uh, the fifth philosophy, right, the fifth philosophy is the philosophy that um, if I don't like what God's doing, I have the ability, depending upon my know-how, of combating what God is doing in His world. Right? And I can fight against him, and I can tear down his kingdom. I can tear down his scheme. I can take that which he created in his world and work it against him, and I'll be successful. Right now, that hopefully is by a select few people, uh, infamous few ple- people. But there is such a phenomenon, unfortunately, within. With, this is di- directly. This is a very sophisticated kind of philosophy. It existed by people within within the Jewish people that did those kinds of things th- through time. There were always individuals that stood out that way. These are five philosophies. And essentially what Rav Meshacham Santa points out is that each and every one of these philosophies it runs directly in the face of what we perceive to be the concept of God's oneness. Because the concept of God's oneness means that God is responsible for virtually everything that happens in this world if it's a good thing or if it's what we envision to be a bad thing Hashem Himself says constantly in scripture all over in Navi, and Chumash Hashem says I created it all the good, the bad, everything I created how we perceive bad the function of bad is a whole discussion which has to be dealt with But Hashem says, I take responsibility for it all. It's very nice of you to try to shift the blame to somebody else, but I will take the responsibility for it all. It all falls into my scheme of things. I have a purpose for everything. Which means His oneness. There is no other. There is no hafache. There is no equal opposite force. Uh, How you deal with the philosophy that everything has to have its equal opposite force, we'll deal with later when we discuss the chapter of creation of evil. But what oneness says is there is no other force. He's the single creator, the single sustainer, and he is involved in his world and determines the laws of the world and has the freedom of enacting those laws every moment or suspending those laws at any moment in time. And the notion that once he establishes a system, he's locked into the system. Or and he he can't uh, he can't adjust the system or anything like that, or that other things can stand in his way would automatically say that there is an equal to him because there is at least something that can stand in his way and prevent him from doing what he wants to do. So essentially, what R' Moshe Chaim says is that when you talk about Hashem being one, you're saying He's virtual. Everything comes from Him, and there is nothing that He can't do in terms of the laws that he set up or the laws that he can suspend at will. There is nobody that can stand in his way and there is nobody that can combat him or fight him or anything of that nature. Which essentially... And he's totally involved. And there's no way of circumventing his involvement in the world. That's essentially... So one means in creator, one means in sustainer, one means involvement, one means in being totally in control of everything that's going on in the world. Oneness in control, oneness in sustainer, oneness in creator. In all of those concepts, he is one. And this is essentially what Rav Moshe Chaim L'tzata has developed up to this point. Now, what we're going to learn tonight, that's all in the form of just trying to get everybody familiar up to the point of where we've learned to this point. What Rav Moshe Chaim L'tzata is now going to say is he's going to, he's going to try to clarify for us, number one, That everything that happens in history has one ultimate purpose to prove this oneness. That's number one. Number two, that this oneness is the supreme goal for which Hashem created the world. That's a second factor. This is the supreme goal, and everything else revolves around this supreme goal. Number three, he's going to explain why this supreme goal more than any other goal. So these are the three things that we're going to try to touch base with this evening. The thing that I would like to add to these three things which he's going to deal with is why does this particular supreme goal of Hashem's oneness, why is this an element which can create an intense relationship between man and Hashem? Why is it? Why is it such an intense quality? In other words, we're talking. Why do we want to know Hashem? What's the significance of knowing Hashem? Because knowing Him means being close to Him, appreciating Him, loving Him, which ultimately leads us back to happiness and fulfillment, which is where we started from in the whole discussion. How does it lead to fulfillment? How does it lead to closeness? How does it lead to, to a sense of happiness? with God. Even going further than that, pleasure. Pleasure with it. Alright, so that's what we're going to do this evening, and we'll start from the bottom of page thirty six. Those of you that are more comfortable in the English can do that. We translate everything anyway. V'umnum. But what I want you to know is Mashiyeshla <laughs> Nalahamin Everything that I just told you in terms of an introduction is what we have as the body of faith. When we say in the very first I believe in a one Hashem. That's all included in the first of the 13 principles of faith. When we say that Hashem is one, singular, unique, And no, there is no other. It encompasses the contradiction of all of those five philosophies. Now, that is the amuna, that is the belief, that's the faith. But the clarification, the certainty, of the sense of certainty of this belief, that is what is going to become clearer and clearer. From the activities and circumstances of the world. Mikolah Brios, every individual will have a part in this clarification. Umi kolah and all of the promises that were made as well are all for that ultimate purpose. So Ramash Haim Latzata is listing for us three things. Ramash Haim Latzata is saying all of the circumstances of the world as seemingly as unrelated as they might be to this kind of a theology are all for the purpose of leading to a greater clarification of Hashem's oneness. Now that seems to be a very broad statement. How does the price of tea in China have anything to do with Hashem's oneness? Or better yet, it's not the price of tea these days, but it's the price of oil. The price of oil, what does that have to do with Hashem's oneness? Um those of you that have somewhat of an imagination could could begin to think about it. Oil, Israel, the different friends, neighbors, enemies, all of the different conditions against us, for us. And we can see the potential for a lot of different things happening by the price of oil. In any case, which would mean that the the results of an Iranian-Iraq war Sooner or later has has an implication for us, and sooner or later is going to make a difference. The way our enemies fight amongst themselves is something that's significant also in that ultimate plan because it's going to make a difference for how in terms of our condition, our our security, our peace, and our security and our peace will ultimately have something to do with this plan as well. So. Essentially what Ramesh Chaim Litzat is saying is I want you to know, number one, that every circumstance of history, though it is not appreciated as an isolated circumstance, as having anything to do with Hashem's oneness, it's all going in that direction. Sometimes it needs years of perspective in order to be able to see how one particular event is significant in the pattern that will lead to this. But Ramei Shachem Lutzata is saying here a monumental statement about history that kol masa, that every circumstance of history has a ramification in this ultimate goal this supreme goal of Hashem's oneness that's number one number two, kol habrios. every individual will have a contribution to make in terms of this oneness now that's a very profound statement because essentially what it's saying is that the job or the task, the mission of revealing the these aspects of Hashem's oneness, exposing them, making people feel them, relate to them is not given over to some to Hashem in a, in a, in a historical cockpit of a plane and it's all God's job and it has nothing to do with man. It has very much to do with man, man's challenges man's mission man's unique contribution that he makes <coughs> and every person can make a statement and make a contribution that will help in terms of of this of this idea now this happens to be okay and I'm not going to get into this this evening but this happens to be at the core of 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 how a Jew looks at mission his identity and his self-esteem and his mission in life, it has to do with all of it. And essentially there's one broad statement that is made which says that everything that Hashem created, He created to make a contribution in this ultimate, in in this supreme goal. And every person has an ability to make that contribution each one from where he's coming from. If it's an educational contribution, if it's it's a philanthropic contribution, whatever kind of contribution it is, but every person, by the way he leads his life, can bring some energy of the realness of Hashem into this world. Every human being has the ability to do it, and in fact was sent here to do it. And it's the collective contributions of everybody Bringing that sense of Hashem's realness into the, this world that will make it happen eventually. So that's a very manu- So in other words, he's saying that all of history, in terms of circumstance, is going to, are, makes contributions. Human beings have the ability. Every call Habrius, all of creation, and if you want to take it to its extreme, it means the animals as well. Because in the concept of the unity of creation, everything is bound to man's purposes and purposes and man is bound to this ultimate purpose. So kalamasim, all actions, all human beings have the ability to make this And all promises that Hashem makes are geared to ultimately lead to this oneness. Which means the following. That if you open up a Chumash, if you open up the five books, if you open up a prophet, if you open up scripture, and you see various promises, uh, you see various promises. Let's say you open up the book of Ezekiel, and you see a promise that the, uh, the lion will live with the lamb. Or you see the promise that uh, the fruits will grow on the trees at a tremendous speed in the times. Or whatever it might be. A lot of different promises that go, that run through all of our literature. They are not to be viewed as independent and isolated promises from each other, but each and every one of those promises functions in one spirit. That the condition of all of those promises is going to give a people a sense of Hashem's realness. That's the function, that's the reason of those Avtachas. Now what does that lead us to? Before we go any further, what that leads us to is a, a very big concept which is a very encouraging concept in Judaism. And that is the concept that there is a momentum to history. It's not as if History plods along, and then God is going to come in at a certain point and say, Well, the job's not getting done, so I'm coming in and I'm going to do the job. And all of a sudden, there's, you know, we turn over a new leaf, or God turns over a new leaf, and everything starts working in the direction that God wants in terms of a supreme plan. This is nonsense. From the moment that Hashem created the world, the world is programmed and is marching in the direction of that supreme goal. Now, it's quite true that choices that people make through history seemingly take the the, the trolley off its tracks. And sometimes it seems that things are moving backwards instead of forwards. But Rav Meshachayim Lutzata is going to explain to us throughout the book that every single circumstance of history ultimately will contribute now let me give you one example, let me give you one example of this, but I want you to, to feel the excitement of this particular concept, it's not an abstract concept, it's a concept that deals with confidence, with hope, with a reason to live, a reason to want to make a contribution in history, that's what this is all about, like everything is screaming one thing, is all moving in one direction. There's a silent march that is going on ever consistently in that dire- di- direction of that goal. I want to give you one example. I want to give you one example of this. Rav Mosh Sata develops a concept which we're certainly not going to get into this evening. It's a whole chapter near the end of the book where he deals with the following concept. A difficult concept to swallow but the concept of the allowance for the intensification of evil, for its ultimate nullification. Now, what does that say? What that says is the following. That sometimes the most meaningful way for man to learn, after he set himself into a pattern of, of wanting to believe in something, is that God lets man hang on to it let's man develop it let's it run its course let it become the monster that it that it's developing into and at the point where mankind or a significant part of mankind would believe that this is obviously a tremendous force equal to god god will then come in and destroy it and overpower it now were that force not allowed To become as full bloom and as as strong as it was allowed to become, one could walk around with the notion that God is not necessarily in control of every situation. It's just that every situation didn't arise. But if certain situations would arise and people would be given the total freedom to do exactly everything that they want... And they would be successful at it. Right? It's conceivable that man could construct a scenario that is so powerfully strong that God is has to stand back and say, you win, and I lost. But by the fact that God lets it re- reach supreme power, which doesn't mean power in terms of muscles, but in terms of the acceptance on people's parts. And then when it's at its pinnacle of acceptance, all of a sudden, God moves in and makes it like nothing. So then one walks away from this with a completely new idea. not It's not that these situations didn't arise, but had they arisen, God would not have the power to be involved or to overcome it. But I see clearly that no matter what happens and no matter what takes over, God still reigns supreme over the most powerful thing. So sometimes forces are allowed to develop and become very intense because the supreme lesson is learnt when it reaches its heightened point and from its most heightened and supreme point God also has an ability to overpower it. Were it never to reach that point we would never have an indication is God powerful enough to deal with it on its highest level and then we could come to believe that there's another force in the world and not really subscribe to the concept of God's oneness in its entirety but by virtually seeing every Meshagas and every force and everything reach its pinnacle and in spite of its reaching its pinnacle, there's still one thing that reigns supreme, we have a dramatic lesson in God's oneness that we wouldn't have had another way. Now, the obvious question that comes up, which is a classical question that people ask in Jewish philosophy, is that the only way that we can learn God's oneness? That's a very common question, and Lozado deals with it. It's a predictable question. Is that the only way we can learn? By letting everything become full bloom and then God comes and plucks it out? Or... And that's an obvious question. That's the only and Lozado's going to deal with that. Trust me, he's going to deal with it and we'll leave that for now. But that's a you know, that's a phenomenal concept of the allowance for something to reach its its, its a supreme level for its nullification, which teaches me something that I wouldn't have known before. Right. Yeah. Does that go for the individual as well? Would that apply to the individual or is it just <coughs> like Everybody a That's, that's a, that's an excellent question. It can exist for the individual as well. In terms of the individual perception of something. In in terms of the human being as a person. It's not only something that's reserved on a collective basis. It could be for the person also. And that, that would reach its pinnacle and then Yeah. One would not want to, to be dealt with that way. Because obviously the the circumstances when you're thrown down from that pinnacle are, are very rough to deal with. Obviously. One would not want to learn in that way. You know, like, I'll do everything and you prove prove me, God, that you're stronger than I am. A person would not want that situation, but that situation does exist on an individual level. There's a, there's a medrash which talks about this idea. You know, um, Yaakov had a dream. Uh, Yaakov had a dream. And it's very appropriate to talk about it over here because in it, we, I can I can show you how people, even of the greatest level, have to struggle with concepts of oneness. Jacob went to sleep on a holy spot and had a dream. Okay, he had a dream. He had a dream of a, a ladder with angels going up and down it. Yeah, we all know the story. And most of us know the story. Uh, and now that dream had had a lot of deeper meanings. It came out of a holy place. It was a holy contact. It was the beginning of Jacob's prophecy. He was going through levels of prophecy. And we are told that the Medrish says that the angels going up and down this ladder symbolized different forces, different nations, which was a reference to different forces in the world. He saw the angel of of Babylon going up 70 steps on the, ladder, which, on the ladder, which was symbolic of the 70 years of the Babylonian exile. And then the angel of, that symbolized Babylon came down the ladder. Then he saw Parasumadai going up on the ladder, if I'm not mistaken, the Persian, 52 steps. The Greek, Assyrian, 180 steps, which is the first three exiles that we lived through that referred to the Babylonian exile, the Purim story, the Hanukkah story. And then he saw Edom, the fourth exile, the exile that we are in now, and he saw the angel going up and up and up on the ladder and not coming down. Not coming down. And it says that at that point in the in the dream, it was, it was a nightmare for Yaakov. And Yaakov was overtaken with tremendous fear. And Yaakov was afraid that Edom would have ultimate power ultimate rule and that the Jew would never ever be able to come out of the fourth exile enough to be concerned about and God said at that point to Jacob Altira Avdi Yaakov do not be afraid my servant Jacob don't be afraid and this is one of the songs that we sing it comes from Isaiah Isaiah refers to it it's one of the songs that we sing on Motsei Shabbos when sh- at the close of the Shabbos because of the close of the Shabbos in the Malava Malka period is a period which is symbolic of our belief in, a- in Elijah and Mashiach's times and we sing this Al-tira Yaakov, because of this Midrashic connection of Yaakov being concerned that we wouldn't come out of exile and God saying to Yaakov you will come out of exile and God said it in the following way to Jacob did I ever share this with you? this, this medrash you know I talk in so many different places I sometimes I'm afraid I'm saying over the same thing to the same people. So the medrash says the medrash says that God said the following words: Altira Avd Yakov, don't be afraid Jacob. the same way that the first three went up and came down. Avze this one will also go up and come down. Which means he will have a measure of rule, success, fame, acceptance in the world, but he'll come down. And God said it in the following way God said, Olaf, the Etzli, even if he will rise and sit down right next to me, I promise you I promise you that from there I will throw him down. And even if he soars with the grace and the power of the eagle, I promise you that I'm going to throw him down. This is what God said to Jacob. Now what does this mean? What does this mean? Even if he rises and sits himself down next to me. What is that supposed to mean? Even in a symbolic sense, what is it supposed to mean? So Revelyon Daster explains that what it means is that even if there will be an ideology that will be tantamount in acceptance in the world to the acceptance of God, as powerful a a theology, as powerful a culture or lifestyle, that it is accepted on par with God, don't worry. The fact that there will be a period in, in history of power, success, fame of theology, philosophy, lifestyle, culture that is equal to me, equal to, to my to what I was accepted for at any period in history, you still don't have to be afraid that you will be ultimately conquered by that. It has to fail. It has to fall apart because it lacks the godliness. It's going to have to come down. It's going to have to come down. Altira avdi Yaakov. Now, essentially, if one analyzes this in perspective of what we're dealing with this evening, what is God teaching Jacob? God is teaching Jacob a concept of his oneness. That no matter how powerful another force can be, and be even equal to me, in terms of of how it catches on in in the minds and the hearts of the world, in the end, there can only be one. There can only be me any other theology that's not consistent with that will eventually have to erode and fall apart. And even if it needs my direct involvement and man does not choose to see its emptiness and its darkness, I promise that if man doesn't see it, I'll do it. Okay. Now, then the discussion continues and this comes to what you asked, Bernie, in terms of the individual. Then God says to Jacob, "All right, does everybody see how this is a, a, a revelation in terms of God's oneness?" And it's very consistent with what's going on because Jacob is learning prophecy. What is prophecy? Understanding the conduct of God in the future by understanding God. So, what does God have to teach Jacob in order that God that Jacob should be in tune with what God's going to do? He has to teach him who he is. What is he teaching him? His oneness. By teaching him his oneness, he's teaching him what he is able to know about God, to be bound to God, and therefore to be able to hook in to, to the sense of prophecy of God's conduct into the future. But let's take it on a personal basis. The medrash gets more interesting. The medrash then says that God told Jacob, Jacob, I want you to walk up the ladder. I want you to go on the ladder. And Jacob said, I'm afraid. I'm afraid to go on the ladder. So God said, what are you afraid of? And Jacob said, I'm afraid. I'm afraid that the same way that they went up and came down, I will also go up and come down. I'm afraid. So God said to Jacob, again, the same words. Don't be afraid. If you will go up, misham ein ata from there you won't go down you won't so what did Jacob do so the Medrash says lo Allah he refused to go up he did not want to climb the ladder lo Allah and because lo Allah the Medrash says Nigzar dalad and because of it it was decreed upon his children the four exiles this is what the Medrash says now what's going on here What's going here? I, I mean, most of us would seemingly think that if God told us to climb a ladder and told us that we could climb it and we won't fall off it and all of that, uh, seemingly, yeah, we would, we would climb the ladder. We wouldn't. We wouldn't. And let's try to explain the psychology of Yaakov. All right? The psychology of Yaakov was the following. Going up the ladder, according to some of the commentaries, meant... What did it mean? Going up the ladder meant being successful and totally involved in this world as the First Nations were. Successful, fame, power, everything. That's what rising on the ladder means. Even in American society, that's what rising on the ladder means. right? Success on all levels, which doesn't mean that you're... um, you know, a destitute Lamedvovnik. It means that you're rising on the ladder in every sense. And Yaakov said, I'm afraid of that. I'm afraid that if we as a people, and I being the symbolic representation of us as a people, rising on that ladder of success, that we will fail. Our success will be the beginning of our own failure. Why? Because in our success... And in our contact with richness and strength and power and everything else, we will become strong-headed, we will become stubborn, we will become arrogant, and we will forget God. As Moses warns us, Vayishman Yeshua, and Vayivat. The Jew very often went away from God not because of his difficult circumstances, but because of the good circumstances. The Gemara says it in a very uh, very uh, cynical way. The Gemara says that a lion does not become ferocious if its diet is hay. It becomes ferocious if its diet is meat. That's the way the Gemara expresses it. It's, it's, in other words, it's from a, a rich, fat diet that all of the elements come out. Right? In any case, so Yaakov didn't want to go up. So Hashem says to Yaakov, "You have nothing to worry about. You can go up. You can be successful. You can retain your spiritual level, and nothing will happen." And Yaakov couldn't believe it. Yaakov couldn't believe it. Okay. The fact that Yaakov couldn't believe it, the fact that Yaakov couldn't believe it, in spite of the fact that Hashem said, "Alti ravdi Yaakov," was making a statement. Was making a statement that there is not one supreme power because if there is one supreme power of type of good in this world the the belief in a one supreme power requires the, the human being to believe that ultimately sooner or later it has to win it has to win the idea the, the notion that the notion that sooner or later a person's got to fall has to break has to, has to fall apart runs contrary to the very concept of Hashem's oneness how? that's Hashem and that's me what's the connection? but the connection is very simple because the belief in Hashem's oneness which means that the belief in the supremacy of everything that Hashem represents that's what Hashem's one. It's not just an abstract concept. Hashem, you're one, you're supreme, and that has nothing to do in relationship to me in my terms of my individual development. It means that everything that Hashem represents in terms of His essence, which is kulaita, in terms of the power of wholesomeness and good, has to have supremacy in the end. In other words, to assume that forever and ever the negative forces in this world will have as much space and as much freedom and as much access and as much success as the powers of Tov will is giving a credence to the powers of negativity on the same level as those of good. And that can't be. Because our belief in the supremacy and the oneness of Hashem means that after everything is said and done there is only one supreme existence. And that is Hashem and that which represents as compatible to Hashem as it is that oneness that tov and therefore when you talk about it is it related you know is this whole concept of Hashem's oneness does this relate on an individual level it does what Hashem wanted from Yaakov was the following that you should ultimately believe the strength of truth the strength of tov the strength of good the strength of that which is wholesome that ultimately it must reign supreme It has to come out in the end the winner. It might take thousands of years and it might go through all kinds of intricate processes but in the end it's got to come out on top because it's full. It's wholesome. It's the right thing. It's the essence of Hashem. It's the thing that is most directly the creation of Hashem. Everything else are things that Hashem created. Situations that Hashem created for ultimate goals but not as inherent and not for their own existence onto itself transitory they're building blocks but they're not things for themselves Tov the good which is the embodiment of the essence of Hashem has to reign supreme in the end now the fact that Yaakov did not believe this about himself or about the Jewish people was a statement that he still wasn't fully connected to comprehending the entire concept of Hashem's supremacy his oneness To which Hashem answers and Hashem says to Yaakov, I'm telling you, you have nothing to be afraid of. Reach that level of of believing in Hashem's oneness. Yaakov wasn't ready for it. So Hashem said, if you're not ready to reach it in faith, so you'll have to reach it through circumstance. And you will go through one exile and a second exile and a third exile and a fourth exile. And the purpose of those exiles aren't because I told you to go on the ladder, you can go on the ladder so you're going to get it. That's not the... That's, that's, that's childish. That's not the way to understand punishment. That's not the way to understand Hashem's response to man. Hashem's response to man even in punishment is a growth process. And what Hashem is saying is that because you couldn't take that leap of faith in the supremacy of Hashem's oneness you will have to learn it through life circumstances. And the life circumstances is the rise and fall of all of these powers. When you will see the rise and fall of every single one of these powers, you will come to realize, you will come to realize that there is a supremacy. You'll have full contact with it, externally and internally with yourself, and you'll come to realize that oneness. Right? So when we talk about this idea of Hashem's oneness, this is this is something that's very timely. In the development, even of the tzaddik, even in the development of the tzaddik, this is an extremely, you know, an extremely important point. Now you'll ask the question: Why did Yaakov go through this dream with this lesson? Why didn't Avram go through it? Why didn't Yitzchak go through it? Why just Yaakov? Right? And the reason for it is very simple: because Yaakov's challenge, his mission in life, was to develop emes, truth. Yaakov was Yitzchak. Avram, excuse me, was Chesed, the development of loving kindness and a bridge to God through the attribute of loving kindness. Yitzchak's bridge to God was through control and discipline. What was Yaakov's bridge? Ms. Once the bridge is Ms. Ms. has to be challenged with the concepts of Hashem's oneness, because if you don't have oneness, you still don't have Ms. Because the picture that you see in front of you is. Is, is a double view it's a double exposure, you're not seeing the whole thing you're seeing everything double, or triple or, or quadruple, whatever you see that's not the true picture so Yaakov, because he had a neshama that could ascend to the highest levels of MS, he was the one that was challenged with the mission of Hashem's oneness more than Avram, more than Yitzhak. because he had to ha- be able to have that world view now, if you go through Yaakov's life, I'm just trying to liven up this abstract concept of Hashem's oneness and make it a little bit more real. If you go through Yaakov's life, everything that happened in Yaakov's life is, is a lesson in this concept of Hashem's oneness. Listen to what the Medrash says. The Medrash says that Yaakov lived through four major crises in his life. Four major ones. He had a crisis with his brother Esav, he had a crisis with his father-in-law Lovin, which some of us share. He had a crisis. He had a crisis with Dina, Okay, he had a crisis with Dina, his daughter, who was defiled by a neighboring nation, and he had a crisis with Joseph, who we believed was dead for 22 years. All right, he had four crises in his life. Now we can't go through the tremendous parallel but what does the Gemara tell us? The Gemara tells us that each one of those crises is a carbon copy of the crises that the crisis with Asaph was Babylonian the crisis with Lavan was Persian the crisis with Dina was symbolic of of the crisis around the Hellenistic period with the Greek Assyrian and the crisis with Joseph Okay, the crisis with Joseph is the crisis of the fourth exile the one that we're living in which obviously we'd really like to dig our teeth into and see the parallels between them right, maybe we'll get into it in the questions if that's the direction you want to go in your questions in any case what's the point of it the point of it is that because got, uh, Yaakov had to had to go re-ascend to these levels of oneness so he had to live through crises that would be able to, to, to clarify all of these different aspects. And by going through it, we would also then have the power to live through it and see those, all those lessons of oneness as well. Let's go to Yosef. Let's go to the fourth one for a moment. Right? And I'm only going to touch on li- literally a drop in the ocean. Right? Let's deal with Joseph. All right? Let's deal with Joseph. There are a number of elements in the Joseph one. I'll deal with two. I'll deal with two that are directly related to God's oneness. The most obvious one is that Jacob was mourning his son for 22 years, believing that God had thrown on him the worst thing that can happen to a person in the world, the loss of a child. Could Yaakov rationalize the reason why this happened? No. I'm on your side, God. Why should this happen to me? If it would happen to some idol worshiper, knew. But to, to happen to me, Yaakov didn't understand it. Yaakov saw that, that he was headed for Gehenna. You know, he saw this as a very bad omen. If I have to be punished in this world so terribly, who knows what's waiting for me when I leave? I mean, Yaakov saw it as a disaster. He couldn't understand it. And what was, in fact, going on? Yosef wasn't dead. Yosef was alive. Yosef was preparing the way for the Jew into Egypt. Joseph was preparing the survival of the Jewish people because he became the king. He controlled the food. And when, the, when his, his entire family came down, he sustained them in Egypt. For that matter, he sustained half of the world by his scheme of saving up the food of Egypt What was the scenario? Yaakov was looking at a God and trying to understand where does all this evil come from? Could it come from one God? How can it be? And Yaakov made the statement, Nistere darakime Hashem. The ways of God are hidden from me or what's happening to me is hidden from Hashem. Whichever way you want to interpret this, but God, Jacob could not reconcile a God of good with what was going on or a God that was truly involved with what was going on in the world. Now, a God of good with this or a God that's involved is running right into the face of some of the most basic concepts of God's oneness. If he's one, everything comes from him. Yaakov couldn't see how it comes from him. If everything is, If God is in full control why should this have happened? Why didn't God intervene and prevent this tragedy from happening to my son? So Yaakov had a tremendous dilemma. Now, at the end of 22 years when he finally meets up with with Yosef, and this I did mention to you, when he finally does meet up with Yosef and he comes to realize that these 22 years weren't hell, but the preparation for the survival of the Jewish people he has nothing more to say, not even to kiss his son Yosef, but to make the statement, Hashem Echad. And he recited the Shema. He said, Shema Yisrael, Hashem eleken, Hashem Echad. Joseph didn't need to say Shema Yisrael, because Joseph knew God's hand in history. He was part of it. He was he was the clear part of, the, of God's hand in history. And Jacob wasn't. Jacob wasn't privy to it. But at the end of two years... Jacob said, "No matter what else is going to happen to me later on in life, one thing I know: Hashem Echad. Now I know a concept of Hashem's oneness that, if I intellectually knew it before, I didn't relate to it in its entirety till this moment. So, yeah, and that's the, with the fourth crisis. He reaches the supreme level. He reaches the supreme level of realizing that it's all Echad. It all comes from one. It all has a reason." It's all incorporated into one Hashem that's tov, even though on the outside it looks bad. Right? And what do you think happens to Yaakov after this fourth crisis in which he learns all of the lessons of Hashem's oneness? After these four crises are over and he finishes learning all of the different things of Hashem's oneness, the next 17 years, his last 17 years of life in this world are without challenge and are a lot years that are um, uh, a forerunner of his Olam Habah, of his world to come. Because after having ascended to those supreme levels of Hashem's oneness and connection to Hashem's oneness, that's already the condition of Olam Haba. He has, this, he has already developed the connection to Hashem on all levels. There are no challenges that are necessary or left for Yaakov anymore. Now, it's significant and it's interesting if we think about it who knows if this isn't the unique challenge of our generation in our fourth exile as well? The In the midst of tragedy and in the midst of crisis. Who knows if, this, if there isn't a remarkable parallel between the two? Let me give you another, another aspect in the Yosef story. Another aspect in the Yosef story which has to be analyzed and which is a, a constant theme in the Prophets Is the ideas of arrogance versus humility and purposeless hate and and division? What do I mean by that? The entire episode, the entire episode of Yosef not getting along with his brothers, his brothers not getting along with him—they're being torn apart. They're wanting to kill Yosef. His Yosef landing up in Egypt and uh, all of the suffering and everything that happened all along the line, what was it a product of? It was a product of a certain measure of arrogance. Because a person, as the Vilnagoan says in his famous work the Evan Shleimer, which is the Vilnagoan's work his ethical work, the Vilnegoan says, she'en gaiva ain't shum Kpaidavakinah. That where there is no arrogance, there is no, there is no anger and jealousy and holding a gripe against another person. They're, con- they're against each other. Real, fundamental, you know, bone-rotting jealousy and division exists where there is a measure of thinking a lot about oneself. Right. Where that doesn't exist and there is a true humbleness of spirit those situations certainly don't become magnified to the episode that we had with Yosef and his brothers. So we have a whole story which unfolds with Yosef and his brothers, which is a product of the tremendous division. It's a product of the tremendous division that was a product of arrogance. All right. Now, those of you that are familiar with how we landed up in our fourth exile and what was the reasons for our fourth exile know that it exactly paralleled this situation. It exactly paralleled the situation of wasteful hate and the arrogance and the sinas chinam and everything else. An exact parallel that the same thing that took us into Golis in the Joseph story and created such division became repeated in history in, in that particular exile. Now, <clears throat> here again, one is going to ask the question, what does arrogance and humbleness versus humbleness have anything to do with a concept of God's oneness. We're saying that everything in history, every circumstance, every promise, everything has to do with God's oneness. Now this seems to be arrogant people, jealous people hated each other's guts threw us into a a, a very divisive situation and history repeated it itself. Okay, that's all nice. But what does it have to do with God's oneness? You know, I just today I must tell you, I got to get this off my chest. I I I um I just read today and it's no wonder, I mean where I read it it's no wonder, but I just read today there there was an attempt at trying to divide the belief in God's oneness from the belief of a one nation. Why? Because obviously you're familiar, okay? You're, you're very familiar with all of the division that exists between Orthodox, Conservative, Reform. So there was a letter that came out not so long ago. It's relatively recent. Uh, Signed by an Orthodox rabbi, a Conservative rabbi, and a Reform rabbi in which the gist of this letter I, I don't have it with me. It's a pity. The gist of this letter was to make the following statement. You are one, your name is one, and your people are one. And essentially, what the letter said is that even if we can't believe in you are one and your name is one, we should still at least believe that we're one people. Right. That was the gist of the letter. So even though we have fundamental differences in the belief of God's oneness, okay, we could still believe in the unity of us as a people. It sounds very nice. It sounds like a very nice platform and a very beautiful attempt at trying to bring things together and things do have to be brought together but not with that kind of a, a, a hashkafa, not with that kind of perspective the, the, oneness, <clears throat> the oneness of the Jewish people is intimately bound up in the oneness of God and let me use as an example, as one example there are many examples but as one example let me use the story of Joseph <clears throat> you have Joseph and his brothers there's jealousy there, based on arrogance, based in, in superegos, based in whatever you want to call it. Let's analyze for a moment. Let's take one of the five false philosophies. Let's develop this a little bit. And the one that I want to zero in on is the Hustler philosophy, okay? Because it's directly related. What is the Hustler philosophy? False philosophy number three states that everything is what? everything is is related to what is to what man does everything is given over to the laws of nature everything is given over to the laws of nature and if man is a hustler he gets if he's not a hustler he loses or everything is in the stars correct what does god have to do with it precious little he created the system and now you work in the system now if you subscribe to that kind of a philosophy you can be jealous of somebody else because he hustled he got or he was born under the right star and he got and I didn't get if I'll hustle I will get if I'm born under the wrong star I certainly can be aggravated and frustrated and if I know that I can't have at least let the other person not have either right I mean, this is. All, let's deal with human nature. Let's deal with with the, the the raw materials of human nature. But if a person believes in the philosophy, which is contradictory to philosophy number three, the hustler philosophy, which is essentially that God is totally involved and God gives every single human being what is rightfully his, there's no place for jealousy there's no place for jealousy because I should not be jealous of another individual because I know that what that person has God gave him and what I have God gave me and if it was meant for me to have I'll have it and if it wasn't meant for me to have it I can rub out 15 people I still won't have it right Hustler philosophy means rub out people so you can get Hustler philosophy talks about jealousy Hustler philosophy talks about I can make it happen Kochi Vyotsam Yadi but the philosophy that says that it's Hakol Hashem, that it's destined from Hashem and Hashem has a master plan and I have my place and He has His place and so on and so forth doesn't allow for it. This is why the Ebenezer says, the Torah says, don't be jealous. How can the Torah dictate a, a law about such an emotion? How can the Torah say such a thing? Don't be jealous. I am jealous. Don't be jealous. So the Ebenezer essentially says, to just tell a person don't be jealous is ridiculous. You're not going to turn it's not a switch that you turn on and off but don't be jealous with the recognition of the fact that what is my chalik is mine. What God gives me is mine and what God gives him is his. I can only be jealous of another person because I believe that it belongs to me or it should belong to me. If I know from the very outset that it doesn't really belong to me I'm not going to be jealous of it. Most normal people are not jealous that they can't fly. I know that it, it, it doesn't belong to humanity. Finished. The things that I believe should should be mine, I can be jealous of. But the things that I know don't belong to me, I can't be jealous of. This is how we can have happiness in our lot. This is why we won't be jealous of other people. So if you analyze it, there is a certain amount of super-ego and hustler philosophy that was at the root of the whole division between Yosef and his brothers. Now, The entire story that unfolds in Yosef and his brothers teaches Yosef's brothers, and this is too long to go into right now, that each person has a unique mission. Yosef did have a uniqueness. Yosef was supposed to be a leader, and Providence proved that Yosef was supposed to be a leader and a unifier. They didn't see that. They didn't want to appreciate it. They wanted to see themselves on equal basis with them. They didn't want to see the difference that each person has a different mission and everybody has to be respected for his mission. The story that evolves is that story, to teach that lesson. In teaching that lesson, one is in more contact, again, with Hashem's direct involvement. I am who I am and I have a mission because of God's involvement with me. The other person is who they are because of God's involvement with them. <laughs> now, the dare say that this is also another part of our challenge. Certainly, as we are thrown into the Gullis, we are definitely challenged with the Hustler philosophy. I mean, what, is, what are we, in terms of the values of society, and the striving of society... In in, in the most subtle ways, what are we challenged with? Nobody bothers us. You can go daven, you can go do a mitzvah. Nobody bothers us in those ways. But we are bothered in a very subtle way, in a way that touches everybody, because everybody's got to make a livelihood and everybody lives around it. It is my power and it is my strength and it is my fortitude that built this fortune for me. Or will build this fortune for me. Or has built this fortune for me and success and identity and self-esteem all revolves around this. And this is the particular challenge. And as long as we view ourselves that way, spiritually, it creeps into our spiritual view of our development as well and our relationships with our fellow man as well. And it is the breeding ground for misunderstanding, division, and so on and so forth. So. What, what I'm essentially saying, what I'm essentially saying is that the issue of God's oneness is not an abstract concept. The concept of God's oneness and His ultimate involvement is something that creeps into my attitudes, my behaviors, my perceptions, my feelings. In every way, it creeps in. It's not something that's abstract and they cannot be separated. If a person doesn't subscribe or doesn't strive to see God's oneness on all of the levels of God's oneness, he's going to have difficulty in putting his own life together on an individual basis for himself in terms of control, discipline, esteem. He will also have difficulties in dealing with his fellow man as well in terms of arrogance and super-egos and jealousies and things of that nature as well. We cannot make ourselves one and our nation one without God. We can't do it. It's not, it's not possible to do without that oneness concept. I, I went a little bit off the point, but I want to show that there is a direct relationship. This is not abstract stuff. This is real, you know, it's real down-to-earth stuff, this, this, this God-oneness concept. And it relates on many, many different levels. And therefore, going back to the original statement, which I was trying to validate—not that Lozado needs a, val- a validation—but in terms of our learning, to validate it, Kol Ma'isa, Kol ha'brios, and Kol all actions, all beings, and all promises—are all leading in the supreme direction of learning that lesson of God's oneness. Kol ma'isa, I, I related to you many stories of history, biblically true. Okay. But even in one's own life, one can start unraveling these things. Usually we have to look back at them. In the midst of them, it's difficult to see. Calabrias, each person has a unique contribution to make. Recognizing the unique contribution, the responsibility and the privilege that lies within it, is very much connected to God's oneness. It's Very much connected to the fact that there is a Hashem involvement in my life, and I have to find out what it is. God's involved with me. God has a connection to me. I'm important because I have a connection to God. Why am I important? I must have a mission. I must have a unique role. Otherwise, why did God make th- why did God make fifty of me? Why did God make a hundred of me? Do you, do you follow what I'm saying? There's a direct connection over here between Kalamaisim, Kalabrias, and Kalhafdachos. All of the promises that are also leading in that direction as well. I, I flew off the handle as per usual. So um, I'll take questions now on this. As per usual, yeah. Uh, we said one of the reasons we're, in, we're involved with is that sin is khina, right? Yes. What kind of sin is justified? I mean, <coughs> you're saying sin is chidah means purposelessness. I mean, hate that has no reason. What kind of hate is? As opposed to hate that is. I mean. Okay. My definition of sin is khina, by the way, is... is, is uh, is almost directly opposed to um, to a philosophy that some of you might be familiar with, um, Rabbi Cook's philosophy. Um, and I'll try to elucidate a little bit. As per usual, you know how to open up cans of worms. Uh, le- let me try. To, let me try to clarify this a little bit. I, by the way, I had um, I had the privilege of um, of addressing. Um, close to about 500 Beis Yaakov girls and staff this past weekend on, on a facet of this issue of Avas Yisrael which I think is very important for, um, for people that were from, from birth to hear in terms of the concepts of Avas Yisrael Sinas Chinam if we look up Sinas Chinam in the Gemara you know, Sinas Chinam is not a term that somebody came up with it's in the Gemara Rashi says on the word Sinas Chinam Sinas Halakha. Those are the words of Rashi. Uh, a prejudice or a hate that is not born out in Halacha, that is not born out in law. That immediately opens up the suggestion that immediately opens up the suggestion that there can be a sinner right, that is born out in Halacha. Let me tell you which one is, okay, and the function of it, and let me show you how it almost doesn't apply today. Right? <clears throat> David HaMelech says. David HaMelech says, echa esna. Hey, Those that hate you, God, I hate. It's it, excuse me? This is a it's a verse that King David says, Those that you hate, I hate. there is um, there's, um a Talmudic sage, which uh, Talmudic saying, which says "Mitzvah Lisna Yisar Rishonim." Again, saying that there there is uh, a place for the hate of Rishonim. Where is the distinction? The distinction lies in the following. <coughs> the distinction lies in what is a Russia? What does a Russia mean? Okay. The only area, okay, in which it's really applicable to say that there should be a a despise for the for the for the individual is where the person is Lahachis or an apikaris, which essentially means a very sophisticated individual who is out to destroy he knows God and he's out to destroy God very similar to the fifth category of people. He knows, he's learned, he's been exposed, he's been developed and he's he's out there he's out there to tear down God. Either to tear down God by destroying other people's beliefs in God, you know, trying to destroy God concept, God realness or that he he goes and develops his philosophies that undermine the concepts of God. And he does it in a purposefully rebellious way. Okay? Now, when we get an individual like that, and even to assess who is that individual is very, very difficult. Right? Now, Chazal say, let me give you one of the symptoms of this individual, that the more you argue with him, the more deeply entrenched he gets in his his rebellion and his heresy that's one of the symptoms if the person doesn't have that symptom he doesn't qualify do you follow what i'm saying but we, in other words we're talking about a person that's very far away he's a very in other words it's a very extreme case already that he's he's in it to the sort of speak to the end even if it means his own destruction kind of a thing a very extreme kind of a situation. Poker And the Gemara says that we're not allowed to engage such an individual in any kind of dialogue because what we will do is we will make him sin even worse than his state of, of being is at that particular point. That is, in those situations where you have a person that's out and destroying, right? he's out and destroying and he should know better and he does know better and he's out to destroy... That is classified as a spiritual enemy, and a feeling of hate towards that person is qualified. It is not. It is not wrong. Right? now, the only trouble is the only trouble is that that is 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 uh, is misapplied. It's very misapplied because we practically do not have that kind of a situation applicable to anybody. Today, right? If it's because of ignorance, if it's because of lack of background, lack of direction, or, or they don't know what they're doing, or whatever else it is, you know, you can take some of the worst cases, and they wouldn't fall into that category. Right? Now let's leave that for a moment, Now let's go from the aspect of defining sinner to a- defining the aspect of love. Okay? I, now, I told you the sinner is in the most extreme situation, Okay, what we would refer to, what the Chazals say, don't engage him because if you're going to engage him, you'll only get him more deeply entrenched. He's not dealing on logical levels anymore. That's the kind of an individual you're dealing with. <laughs> Does it mean, for instance, that that person can't change? It's not saying that that person can't change, but you can't combat him. You can't go out at a war. Can he change? It's very possible that he can And there is there is a statement which is made which is somewhat not clear if we are supposed to at least pray for those people that somewhere along the line that they should return. There is, there's, there is definitely an opinion that says that we still have an obligation to at least pray for them that they should come. out. But until that time it comes right, if we should feel terrible te- that we should feel that they're our enemy because they're destroying us that's a valid feeling and to tolerate it and let it go by and accept it is not an acceptable feeling in those situations now let's go to the Ava part because the love part is the very complicated part because love is you know the Shlom HaMelech says al Peshoi Em Tachasa Ava for all of the sins love covers it up love is a very is a, is a tremendous power and, and and can be misdirected right let's talk about love Let's say you have a person, okay, let's say you have a person that is <clears throat> a Russia in the sense not really a Russia, but a Russia in the sense that he uh, doesn't believe anything and you know so on and so forth. But it's not his fault. Right, let's give that as an example. Now. And because of that he has a whole behaviour and he has a whole lifestyle and he represents and he teaches and so on and so forth. Now, to look at that individual and say, well, he doesn't classify as a Russia, and because he doesn't classify as a Russia, I can't hate him and I have to love him. Okay? Because to hate him would be sinas khinem, so I have to love him. Okay? That still needs definition. To embrace that individual and to take him, so to speak, unconditionally, take him as he is. Okay? Look away from all the flaws, look away from all of the faults, don't concentrate you just love him because he's another person. Okay? Without any basis whatsoever. All right? But unconditional. I take you the way you are. Okay? I accept and tolerate everything that you are. That's not kahalacha. That's not acceptable. All right? What Ava would be appropriate in that situation is you're an individual. You're a creation of Hashem. You have a neshama, you have a tzlamalakim, and you represent a tremendous potential. You represent a mission. You're a unique human being, and I love you for all of those things. But that doesn't mean that I unconditionally take every situation. But I take you for what you are potentially and what you are if the things that that are good about you right now. You don't dismiss the good things just because he's not developed in all of the ways. Take everything good, potentially and realized, in the individual and you love the individual on the basis of those things. But that same love that for all of those things should generate a concern and a commitment to try to correct and not to be oblivious of the parts of the person that are unacceptable. So, in other words, it's not contrary to the love, but it's a product of the love. Because I love you so much for what you are in realized good and what you are in potential good, I will direct that love, not in a hateful way, but in a productive way, uh, in a productive way to try as much as I can through that love that I have for you take out the things that don't belong or to help you rise out of the things that don't belong that's authentic Avis Yisrael that's the true picture of what Avis Yisrael is I always say over the story of the Chafetz Chaim I, sh- I said it by a seminar that the Chafetz, set up, okay, the Chafetz Chaim set up the two kitchens he set up a kosher kitchen for the soldiers in World War One. And it went through a lot of political and financial difficulty to get set up. Some of the people that supported it financially came to the Chafetz Chaim and said to the Chafetz Chaim, there are Jews that eat in the kosher kitchen, and after they're finished in the kosher kitchen, they go eat in the the trade kitchen, in the non-kosher kitchen. For that, we didn't throw our money. For that, we didn't knock our heads against the wall. Basically, the idea to hell with them if they eat in the non-kosher kitchen, why should we have to pay for them? And the Chafetz Chaim's response to them was no. HaVuz Chaim's response was if they eat in the kosher kitchen first they'll have less appetite and they'll eat less treif when they come to the non-kosher kitchen. That is, a pr- that is looking at a person that still, so to speak, hasn't arrived on all levels and that can only come out of... Uh, that kind of a calculation comes out of Ava. That comes out of love. Okay? In other words, cold, cold orthodoxy without love I will never produce that kind of a, 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 a statement. That comes out of the Ahava. Right? Now, there is a, a terminology which I don't know if I should credit it uh, by, I, by saying it, but there is, a, there is a terminology which is called Ahavas Chinam. I don't know if you ever passed by it. Maybe I'm treating you to something that you never heard and I'm responsible for teaching you something that you wouldn't have known otherwise. But Ahavas Chinam which means indiscriminate love. That's not simple. Avashinam means not denying who the person is, not being blind to who the person is, but recognizing the potential, not taking away the good of the person potentially or realized because of the things that are missing. We have a tendency to do that. If you did this, you don't count, you're nothing, you're this, you're that we have a tendency to do that we cancel out individuals right? what what our responsibility And obviously Yisrael says is that you have to look at the whole individual as Hashem looks at the whole individual, we have to train ourselves to look at the whole individual engender love because we look at the whole individual and darn it if you look at the whole individual there's something to love about every person and then use the basis of that love to be able to direct in a positive direction the things that shouldn't be there, that don't belong there, and try to help the person out of a feeling of love to deal with those things, but to be blind to those things, indiscriminate, right, doesn't have a basis. Love is not something that comes without a basis. It, it's me. even even skin love has a basis, and the love of skin, and in, in the love of passion, there's no such thing. as as going pig-headed into love and saying, I'll love you no matter what. There's no such thing. Anything that's a a qualitative, a meaningful love has some form of a connection. And the fact that I have to now reconcile, I have to reconcile the fact that a person is a mixture, this is the way to reconcile it. Focus on the taiv, generate a feeling from which it can become a springboard to help the person in the other areas. Does that clarify it a little bit? What you're saying is any kind of somebody... Let's say somebody hurts me in business or hurts my feelings, that's... can I... any feelings which... You can have a negativity to the behavior. Right. Oh, so what is that? A negativity uh, to... Isn't that the... then low if I have a negativity to the behavior? To the behavior? No. No. To the behavior... In other words, if somebody does something wrong and I'm angry because it's a wrong thing, all right... That's, that's not shalom halacha, To cancel out the individual, this person did such and such and therefore I hate you, Okay, that's not necessarily Kalaha. Do you follow what I'm saying? There's a distinction between the actions of the person and the human being. There is a distinction. There is a distinction. That's why there's a verse at the end of one of the Psalms, yitamu chatoye min ha'aretz. Right? so the Gemara says means that there will come a time before Mashiach that all sin will leave this world so the Gemara says it doesn't say sinners it says sins you see the distinction in other words we're not praying for the removal of people we're remo- we're, we are praying for the removal of the negative behaviors the things that are not positive the things that generate negative things we're not interested in the destruction of the individual and we always have to see the whole individual as a whole individual. And this is the way ultimately Hashem looks at us as well. If Hashem wouldn't look at us this way and He would focus in on one rotten thing and say you ain't worth anything because of this one rotten thing, none of us would have a fat chance at anything. All right. Uh, we all are a mixture if we analyze it we all, all are a mixture uh, now there are other aspects obviously also, that are very important to deal with the fact that the other individual is not another individual but that the other person is a part of me which is a whole other thing I don't know if you want to get into it right now but that's, that's another whole part of it that that person carries a part, I'm connected to his Nishama, he's connected to my neshama what I do benefits or hurts him and what he does benefits or hurts me that's another aspect of Avas Yisro which has to be investigated. <coughs> <coughs> yeah, okay. Next. You have a question. Well, the terminology about Avas Chinam, I'm not terribly well read on it, but it's been thrown at me a number of times. Okay. I'm not terribly well read up on it, but this was, this was by the way, if you want to know... I know it's very very controversial and I'm not going to get myself into the middle of it but this was a major criticism you know th- I don't know if you're aware of the fact that he, he was he was seen as a uh, as a very big person but he also had tr- very big criticism against him and one of the criticisms that was against him was because of this philosophy that led to certain things that he did which were uh, people felt were unacceptable that they were tolerating or accepting of things that Avis Yisrael did not did not dictate should be accepted. He was the one that coined the phrase Avas Chinam. You know, love for nothing. As opposed, in other words, how do we fight Sinas Chinam? We fight Sinas Chinam by Avas Chinam. Unpurposeful hate will be will be fought by unpurposeful love. That was the philosophy. What I'm pointing out is that if you look up the source of Sinas Chinam, that's not what Sinas Chinam is. Sinashinam is defined by Rashi in the Gemara as sinashalaika halacha. What is the opposite of sinashalaika halacha? A hatred that's not based in halacha. What's the opposite of that? Love that's not based in halacha? (laughs) doesn't make sense, right? Love that's not based in halacha? A Jew is always looking to halacha. That's not the opposite. The opposite of sinashalaika halacha is sinaka halacha. Do you follow what I'm saying? I'm just saying that most of that is not that the part of sinek halacha is almost not applicable today. All right, it's misused today. The part which is the challenge is how to use ahava. We're a person as a mixture. All right? Now, if you analyze this, what I'm saying is so simple. I'm not saying anything profound. I'm saying something which is so simple. How do you deal with a child? How do you deal with a child? a child has positive things and negative things and you're their parent or you're their brother or you're their sister how do you deal with it? I hate your guts because you did this against me or I hate you because you did this or that or the other thing would a parent do that? Would a child do that? No a, a sibling do that? No how does, it, how does a parent deal with it? I love you for who you are I love you for all of the connections and many of them we can't even define there are many parts of the connections of Ava that we can't even define but the love is there naturally there, and certainly there is an an indescribable love, but a very real love that exists between people as well. But how do we deal with the flaws? We we don't say, um, I know that you're on drugs, and I know that you're on this, but I love you. Uh, And we we uh, We don't barter off one for the other. We don't say I hate you because you're on drugs, and on the other hand I don't say because I love you that I don't recognize the fact that you're on drugs. I love you and because I love you this problem bothers me and I'm gonna do my darnest to try to get you out of that problem. You follow what I'm saying? So it's it's very simple. You know where the problem comes up? The problem comes up is because under the name of religiosity, under the flag of religion, people sometimes make the mistake uh, that it does not operate in the same way that a human being is supposed to operate in all other relationships and in all other emotions. Religion is not some cold, calculated doctrine. Right? It's human. And it deals with humans, and it deals with human development, and it deals with human problems, and human strengths, and human weaknesses. It's a human thing. It's a, it's, it's a way of chayim. And it's not a denial of all of those aspects. We got into this discussion a little bit last week also, you know, with sitting shiva. And, the, and that's something which is very important you know going into it pig-headed without the halacha which dictates the emotions and which is the philosophy of the emotions can get a yid under the banner of Yiddishkei Rachmaneletzlan to do very destructive things right all under the banner of you know of holy right? and you have to be very careful that you don't fall quickly into that you don't fall unconsciously into that kind of a trap yeah. I just wanted to to a question about because I just read a book that just came out about his letters and he had a critic who wrote to him and said why do you dialogue with all these non-observant people and he said in the letter that he really only tried to relate to people who had what he called the sagula inside which I guess we would call a spark or a piece of the treasure that we all have and if he felt that he could reach them in some way then he would dialogue with them but if he felt that that spark was not there at all like you gave the example of some people earlier, then he, he wouldn't do it. And he got from what I could tell from reading this, he got a lot of criticism because he dialogued with anybody at all who was non-observant and certain, certain people were very upset about that. According to the fine. which is a beautiful medrash, the four things, uh, in now, right? Yep. I mean am I wrong in this The oneness of God will overcome the fourth exile. I understand the fourth exile is Western civilization. Is that is that off? No, it's not off. It's but not off. it's no, it's not off. But it need that to, it's it's a very general statement that Probably. you're making. It you need more. Yes, it definitely is. Uh, it definitely is personified in a lot of aspects of Western civilization. Definitely. again, that doesn't mean that there aren't good things in Western civilization. Yes, yes, yes. But there is a relationship which is a very intricate thing. There is a relationship with what plays on us from the outside in terms of spiritual alienation and what we ourselves on levels of character are going through internally. There is always a, a reflection in other words, if we're thrown into an exile where we suffer the alienation of arrogance, it's because internally we're suffering from it as well. We're always thrown into uh, a situation that matches our own identical internal situation. Because sometimes when we see it outside of ourselves, then it becomes a, a, a way in which we can learn something. You know, when you point at a person and say, You have this thing wrong with you very hard for the person to realize it and he doesn't necessarily see all of the repercussions of it, but if you can take a situation which is camouflaged enough that it doesn't directly point back to them, and you could say, take this particular situation and look where it's going, and predict where it's going, and the person says, well it's horrible it's disgusting, it's so destructive, and then the person says Charlie, and how is it different than what's happening in your own life? And then the person is left dumbfounded. I mean, and this is true even of great people. When and Hanavi wanted to give Musr, he wanted to give a reprimand to King David, he painted a story and told David, What do you think of this story? And then David, and it was well camouflaged. And David said, The person is me Misa, he should be put to death. And then and Hanavi says, And pray tell how is the story of what you did different and essentially what exile is is Hashem matches aspects of the things that are deficient within the person internally and plays them out externally in the alienation that he finds outside and by seeing it outside and its destructiveness and its emptiness on the outside, that gives a person a view that he can then internalize for himself as well and that's how gullus is a productive process as opposed to being a totally counterproductive process. Yeah. What you define sinofinum really then doesn't match the term that it's trying to define because what you're saying is sinofinum means that you're You're a asking a question on Rashi, you mean. Okay. Let's just get it clear. Okay. Yeah, what's the question? I, I'm not sure if it's yeah. because you're supposed to according to what you're saying then you're supposed to